I'm going to uh, pray the colic that we had uh, for today again. Just kind of a mouthful. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servant's grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Um, that so today's the tr- uh, Trinity Sunday, um, and uh, it's a good Sun. I don't even really. Pl- I don't think I planned this to start this series that I'm doing for four or five weeks. We're going to skip next weekend, the weekend of Memorial Day, and pick back up in June on heresy. Um, so you're all, you all came because you're heretics, right? <laughs> um, well, we all are. I mean, the truth is we're all heretics, honestly. That's just our default setting. Um, our default setting is usually the one that's off. And uh, we have to constantly come back to this stuff with faith and repentance to, um, to be kind of corrected. Um, but Trinity Sunday is a good Sunday to start this series because a lot of early church uh, discussion of the topic of heresies revolved around the nature of God. Uh, Christology... Uh, like, who is Jesus? What is his makeup? How is he both uh, man and divine? And the Trinity particularly, what is that all about? How can there be uh, three persons and one God? Um, both concepts are enough to kind of blow your mind if you think about them long enough. Jesus Christ, 100% human, 100% God, and one. You know, not 200%, 100%. God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, three persons and one God. <laughs> Not uh, three distinct, uh, different people, but uh, three persons and one uh, Godhead. Uh, and this was just the, uh, the knockdown, drag out arguments of the first, uh, I don't know, five centuries of the, uh, the uh, Christian church. Even as early as the Bible, you start to see people not getting these things, but there were councils during second, uh, third, fourth, fifth centuries of the church that we now look to and recite the Nicene Creed, which is sort of a, a, a document that came out of two different councils, and Nicaea and Constantinople. Is that right? I think so. Um, the other thing about this is I'm not an expert. Um, you know, I study patristics in seminary. Um, we learn some of this stuff, but it's kind of like you, you know, if you have a master's degree, you took some classes, but you didn't really become an expert on any of those particular topics. Um, Exactly. Uh, early, uh, it means, uh, the study of the early church fathers. Um, there you go. Um, so uh, I took that class, you know, and so that qualifies me to teach this. But really the approach I want to take to talk about heresy is I call this heresies from the ground up. Well, what do I mean by that? What I want to do is, uh, is talk about now, like everyday life, and how we see things that the early church called heresy, and there are different names for them that you can study. And I always get confused about, you know, Apollinarianism and uh, Nestorianism and uh, um, Adoptionism and Docetism, which are the two I'll talk about today. And maybe you've never heard these before, but I get them all kind of mixed up in my mind. 
Um, but it's easier for me to think about my lived life. As I said, we're all heretics in our hearts. And so even these, uh, these heresies that the early church struggled with, we see in iterations today. So I'm going to tell two stories and talk about two different um, uh, heresies. But before I do that, I want to I read uh, my passage, my, um, my verses from Scripture that... Um, that apply to what we're about to um, learn about. Uh, This is um, from Paul's second letter to Timothy. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. Uh, They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. And so you see here even in the Bible with Paul writing a letter to Timothy, he is aware of some other teachings that are out there where people, um, you know, it sounds good, you know, because it's really speaking to what I already believe is what I want to hear. have itching ears, uh, you know, uh, the time is coming. Well, that was in the first century, and the time is always here. You know, we always have those itching ears to, to uh, want to listen to the teaching of, um, of doctrine, doctrines that are not um, sound. Um, is that all I want to say by way of introduction? Last summer I taught a class, maybe some of you came, where I talked about, I think it was a one-off, where I talked about um, cliches, aphorisms, and sayings, or something like that, I called it, you guys were there. Basically this is the same thing, because I feel like really what I'm up against as a, as a Christian, first and foremost, who tries to think of himself as orthodox, you know, lowercase o, not like Eastern Orthodox, but orthodox in the sense of like, I can say the Nicene Creed without crossing my fingers behind my back. As, as a Christian and also as a pastor and public speaker and writer of Christianity, the thing that I feel like I'm up against are those uh, sayings and cliches and aphorisms out there in the world that uh, speak to our, what we want to hear, you know, our itching ears. Um, uh, you know, just look at uh, any sort of advertising uh, campaign or billboard or television commercial, which I don't really watch TV, so I don't know, I'm not up to date, but you know, you just think of like Nike, just do it. Of course we think, yes, you know, like just do it, that's it, right? That's, and it goes actually in a counter direction to the Christian life and faith, which has to do with like, just give up, <laughs> just give up, because you can't do it on your own, and you're not as strong as you think, you know, so that's just one example that you might know, but the, our life is full of things that, that are trite sayings that we live by more so than the stuff that we think we learn in these books that are thick with a wealth of, of knowledge, our hearts are often in another place. Uh, and so that's why I really want to talk about this stuff. Uh, I, when you start to learn about the ancient heresies that the church struggled with, you start to see what's going on in the world. Like, that sounds a lot like this, you know? Uh, and, and, and that goes counter to this idea of uh, the nature of, of God or uh, Jesus Christ as fully man and fully divine. So two stories that I want to tell, um, and they're not Christian stories. Uh, they come from the secular world or from another religion. And the reason I tell these stories and not Christian stories is because 
uh, they're not as close to home. It, it'll be well, in the sense of uh, the, 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 the Christian assumptions. But they are also, they're closer to home in our everyday life, though. Um, and uh, often heresies uh, speak to people because there's an element of truth to them. Uh, there's something about them that we like that seems commonsensical uh, and intuitive. Uh, and so, of course, those are the kinds of things, the stories that we continue to go on telling ourselves. And the first story I want to tell you comes from a movie that maybe you've seen, but before that it was a true story that actually happened to a young man, and then it was a book uh, written by, what's the guy's name, Krakauer, John Krakauer, is that his name? Uh, uh, if you come to the five o'clock service, I mentioned this in a sermon a couple few weeks ago, uh, and it just has been this this story has been haunting me since I watched the movie three four years ago called Into the Wild by um, Chris, uh, about this guy named Christopher McCandless. Have you heard about him? He uh, he graduated from college I think in uh, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, he um, had money in the bank, you know, $10,000 in savings or something, you know, zero debt. God, I wish, you know, <laughs> if I could graduate college with that. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he, he did well in school and his sort of had, you know, his family kind of had his life sort of planned out for him. And he backlashed against that. True story. And the, the movie, which is directed and written by Sean Penn based on John Krakauer's book, Sean Penn based on John Krakauer's book, the movie has this dramatic scene where he, um, he cuts up his credit cards and his ID and he burns his social security card and he donates all $10,000 to Oxfam. He gets rid of his, uh, most of his belongings and he goes out in this junky car and just sort of like travels the United States. For years, and fu until finally the car uh, gets to a place that's, uh, where you can no longer drive it because of a flash flood in the middle of the desert when he was sleeping, uh, somewhere like Arizona. And so now he's on foot and going around by train uh, and hikes the um, the Pacific Coast uh, Pacific Crest Trail, which is all like the Appalachian Trail, but on the West Coast. Uh, and the whole movie is really just about him, he, he him on his own sort of meeting people along the way, but not really committing to any sort of relationship with these people. And it's a 50-50 kind of mix between the narrative of what's happening to him and the, the, the flashbacks in his mind of the uh, people with whom he's had relationships, uh, his parents, siblings, uh, ex-girlfriends, things like that. Uh, so even though he's not alone, I mean, even though he is alone physically, he's never alone. You know, he's always in his mind um, trying to make sense of his past. And when he's trying to kind of depend on himself, he's, uh, he's we really see that he's weak emotionally because of the flashbacks that he's having. And his desire is finally to go to Alaska. That's sort of like especially in the United States where he can travel freely, that's the you know, last frontier, you know, the, uh, the, the, the place with the most sort of uncharted territory where you can really get out in the middle of nowhere and be by yourself and probably never see a soul for a long time unless you try to. And he does make his way to Alaska and naively um, goes out into this area with 
not, I mean, he's got a decent amount of equipment, but not the right equipment for the Alaskan bush, you know, where you're going to need some heavy duty uh, clothing uh, to survive the harsh winter and uh, material to survive to hunt and forage with. He has not so great of a rifle with very little ammunition and doesn't really know how to field dress a moose and all these things. And he ends up uh, finding a bus, a, an abandoned bus that's sort of used as a hunter's cabin um, shelter on the other side of this river. And he lives there. And he, uh, as I said, he tries to hunt and he shoots this moose and doesn't know how to field dress it. So it goes, it spoils. So he's depending a lot on foraging and he ends up eating these berries that he shouldn't eat. And uh, th there's a lot of controversy over whether he'd froze to death, starved to death, or actually died from poisoning of eating these berries, or some combination of the three. And he tries to leave while he's sick. And you see in the Sean Penn movie, he's writing, his journal gets shorter and shorter each day until he'll write cryptic entries like lonely, <laughs> starving, and tries to go across the river finally. And uh, because it's, um, what, you know, summer or fall, that river's much bigger and the rapids are stronger than when he crossed it earlier in the year, and he can't get across. He's stranded, and so he dies out there. Um, and uh, when he was trying to escape uh, the sort of realities of life, uh, when he was trying to get on his own and depend on himself, um, that free, what looked like freedom actually killed him actually killed him. And he was never able to actually get away from the people he knew because they were always up here. Uh, and uh, the second story I want to talk to you about was um, another thing that will probably haunt me for the rest of my life. And I so I'm sorry for telling it to you <laughs> because it will haunt you. But I think we need to tell these stories because uh, this happens in the world. Uh, and uh, if, it, if it offends you, I, you know, I apologize. Uh, if you're easily offended, leave, you know. Um, but uh, I was listening to This American Life. Have you ever listened to that on NPR? I listened to the podcast, which is this sort of documentary, story-based uh, radio program that picks a theme each episode and then tells several stories based on the theme. And there was a recent one about this woman from uh, pa Pakistan, I think. Uh, her name was... Uh, Mariah, Mariah Karimji, and she's from this obscure sect of Islam called the Daudi Bora. And the Daudi Bora, which are like um, only about 40,000 people in Karachi, which is a huge, massive city. Uh, so that's a small sect in this big city of 22 million people. Uh, what they do is all the women are circumcised at seven years old. And the story they tell to the girls when they do this is you have a bug inside of you that needs to be removed because if it isn't removed, it will go up into your mind and, uh, and infect you in a way that will um, ruin you in adulthood. What are they talking about? They're talking about sex. They're talking about sex. They're trying to um, remove from these girls sexual desire so that they, when they're adults, they won't uh, cheat on their husbands or be promiscuous or whatnot. And she moves to the United States as a young adolescent. And when she's like 15, she's realizing there's something different about herself and does a lot of, you know, she's got the internet and researching it and learns about female uh, genital mutilation and realizes, I've been a victim of this. 
um, and finally confronts her parents about it, and her, the parents justify it, that's the way we do it. The religious clerics <laughs> tell us that's what we need to do, and so we just, that's what we do. That's, the, that's their culture, it's taken for granted. And um, so she's become sort of a, um, an international um, advocate against uh, female um, circumcision, uh, uh, general mutilation. And she moved back to Karachi uh, and goes back to the sect where she grew up and goes back to the, um, the uh, mosque where she grew up. And she, uh, she's looking for the woman who did this to her because her face is seared in her brain, but she doesn't know who she is. And then she realizes, I don't need to look for that woman. I st she starts to look around and realizes all the women in this place have also gone through the same thing as me. And she starts to talk to them, and about half of them refuse to have this conversation, but some do, including childhood friends. And one's name is, um, she, is she gives her an uh, alias named Samina, and they're in, it's uh, This American Life, so it's on radio, and she interviews her. And um, they both have a really similar story, and um, she's talking to Samina, uh, Mar Mariah is talking to Samina, and says, uh, and the topic of desire comes up. Do you feel like you have less sexual desire? No. No. Anytime, you know, I see a, a guy who's attractive to me, uh, I have desire. Or if I see something on television, I have desire. And so the, the, trying to remove the desire in a certain way didn't work because it's not, it's not something that you can prevent physically. It's deep down in the heart and you can't you can't remove that you know you can't remove that with anything except for like uh, death <laughs> uh, or or so much traumatic abuse that one has mental illness you know I mean it, you, you just you, you you can't you can't take it out physically in that simplistic way so even though they're, they're buying into this wholesale as a culture and they all go through it it's not working it's just simply not working now why do I tell these two stories um, the, uh, the book that I think you ought to read, especially if you want to keep coming around, not next week, remember, we'll take a break, but I think three or four weeks in June. I hope we sell this in the bookstore. If we don't, we ought to. The Cruelty of Heresy. Has anybody heard of this or read it? Yeah, there you go. So you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Fitz Allison, who's a past bishop of South Carolina, actually ordained me a priest, uh, wrote this book that, you know, there are like 10 books, theological books in my life that just are, you know, remember the scene in the matrix, the red pill or the blue pill, you know, um, it just, it completely changed the way I view, um, life and Christianity. And he says there, um, there are, and th he gets this from someone else, uh, Anglican, uh, theologian, he, he gets this dichotomy, from an Anglican theologian named William Porcher DuBose, but Fitz actually writes the book. There are all these different heresies that maybe you've heard of. You know, Pelagianism uh, uh, gets met, thrown around here a lot. Um, Gnosticism, and Gnosticism isn't one heresy, it's like a, an umbrella heresy that has different types. But Fitz writes this book and he says basically, You can put all heresies in one of two 
camps. Um, adoptionism or docetism. Well, what does that mean? Let me just read. I think this is probably helpful because I can try to like summarize it. But uh, the way Fitz wrote this book is it's accessible. It's so accessible. A lot of theological books aren't. This one is. And he wrote it in mind. He says somewhere in the introduction, I wanted both the sort of everyday layperson and the academic to be able to read this book and appreciate it and get something out of it. Um, and uh, so this is what he says about, first, docetism. Um, one of the earliest versions of the story of Jesus that jeopardized uh, what Christians had experienced was called docetism. The docetists found it incomprehensible that Jesus could have actually suffered. They answered the essential questions about him by insisting that he only appeared to suffer, to weep, to thirst, to hunger, to sweat and agony, and to die, and that his incarnate human state was so spiritual that he only appeared to be human. Docetism is derived from the word dokein, uh, Greek, uh, which means uh, to seem or to appear. The faithful denied these teachings early on because telling the story the docetic way would cause hearers to miss the essential aspects of Christian experience. And then skipping ahead, docetism was influenced by the Greek philosophical notion that a divine being could not suffer. Uh, by the hope uh, in some uh, Jewish quarters for a p politically victorious Messiah and by the persistent and understandable human tendency to avoid suffering and to resist any teaching that makes use of it. A contemporary example of docetic approach to suffering is Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy taught that the entire material world is unreal and that suffering is illusory and only appears to exist due to the absence of faith. If one had true and complete faith, uh, there would be no pain or suffering and no death. Docetic teaching adds an additional burden by making the victim feel guilty for imagining real pain. The docetic flight uh, from suffering, so hu humanely understandable, nevertheless, is a way of escape, not a way of the cross. The docetic escape is seductive, indeed, but one that would leave us bereft of true life, peace, fellowship, endurance, character, hope, and most of all, of God's comforter. I like that line, the seduction of um, about docetic escape. So you could call docetism a philosophy of escape. Um, uh, Remember that, uh, and, and, the, and if we're thinking about from the ground up, I really want to focus on human nature. When people talk about heresies, they usually talk about the nature of God, which is helpful, but I'm trying to flip it on its head. So remember that this philosophy had a lot to do with Jesus seems to suffer. So when he was up there on the cross, he was just like, it was a, dra it was a drama, you know. Why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. None of that was real. Like he was just up there pulling your leg. Um, and, and that's because it comes from this uh, sort of uh, uh, platonic sort of uh, Greek philosophy of, um, of the uh, material world is bad and so therefore we need to escape it. 
Um, and, uh, and so they couldn't imagine a God that suffers in reality, in physical reality or in an emotional sense, that he only seems to suffer. So that's the, the God part of the heresy. But if you want to flip it on its head and talk about human nature, it plays itself out in terms of sort of escapism. Um, and escaping from what? Escaping from, from suffering, not addressing uh, reality on its own terms. Remember, um, what's his name? Uh, Christopher McCandless. He was in a docetic, I mean, there are other things going on here, but you can sum it up in terms of a docetic uh, lifestyle. And there's a certain level of stoicism in what he was doing, you know, like getting rid of everything, going out in the woods, uh, trying to become a better person by, you know, self-improvement out in the desert. And the, or this, this infected early Christianity with things like asceticism, uh, the Desert Fathers, uh, a lot of monasticism is, is quite docetic. I know some monks and I love them. Don't get me wrong. I know a lot of people and love them, but most people are either, some, <laughs> to a greater extent, docetists or adoptionists. But I'm just trying to point out what's going on here. Um, so you follow me in terms of docetism. What about adoptionism? Remember, this is the other main category of heresy that f fits Allison and also uh, William uh, Porsche de Bose, uh say uh, are, are one of the, the, the two main umbrella categories. The teaching of the adoptionists, however, has a clear and distinct thrust. They, they accept Jesus as Messiah but rejected his divine sonship. He was simply the son of Joseph and Mary, upon whom the Spirit of God descended on the occasion of his baptism. This divine sonship was a kind of reward, an anointing, for having obeyed the law. He thus became the greatest of the prophets, but in no way does he re uh, release humanity from the burden of the law. On the contrary, he showed that the law can be obeyed uh, by obeying it himself. He was adopted into divinity and became an example to his followers to do likewise. Uh, the, quote, good news of adoptionism is to, quote, try harder. It contains an important truth, as all heresies do, uh, in insisting on the real and actual humanity of Jesus Christ, the necessity to follow him as Lord, and the inspiration of his example. However, it misses the really good news of accepting him as Savior by relegating the meaning of his death to a mere stoic example of how we are to face our death. And it relies on the ability of the human will to fulfill the demands of God. Adoptionism reduces the essential significance of Jesus Christ to an example for his followers to obey. Those who uh, so do will be similarly rewarded with sonship and divine acceptance. Adoptionism makes uh, Christianity a religion of control rather than a religion of redemption and reduces morals to moralism. Christianity becomes a grim striving for a goal never to be reached and is preoccupied with symptoms of sin rather than an attempt to treat the human condition that produces sin. It is always reductionistic reductionist. It reduces mystery to rationality, unity uh, to a hope for unity, joy to striving, religion to law, and liberty to bondage. Um, so if uh, docetism is about escape, uh, adoptionism is a, 
that if that's the one of the two primary human tendencies, one is escape, the other is self-centeredness. Uh, it's this is basically what would Jesus do if you say that you're committing a heresy. I'm sorry. The 1970s and 80s lied to you. If you still have the bracelet, don't donate it, burn it. <laughs> Orthodoxy is about If this is orthodoxy, uh, what did Jesus do? <laughs> WDJD. Okay, get that bracelet and uh, like the guy who bought the Bibles, buy 2,000 and donate them to the world. Um, uh, but this is one of uh, sort of uh, moralism, legalism. Remember, okay, we start with the, 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 the historic heresy. What did that have to do with God? What did that have to do with Jesus? Their belief was that Jesus was a regular bloke like me, but at some point in his life, he got his act together enough and was sinless that God said, you're the man, you know, you're the Messiah because you've lived the most pure life. And at his baptism, adopted Joseph and Mary's son to become divine, but not part of the triune Godhead, a divine sort of guy, <laughs> more divine than anybody else, more prophetic than anybody else. Uh, and so he becomes... A, um, uh, an example or a teacher. But if we flip it on its head, remember this is heresies from the ground up. What does this say about people? What is the self-centeredness that's happening here? It's kind of a, 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 a control um, through uh, activity that is usually getting at this symptom and not the underlying problem, which is a, a fouled human nature. Uh, our human nature, deep down, is where the problem is. And out of it, uh, it what, what did Jesus say? It's not what we take in, it's what comes out of us. It's what comes out of our mouths, it's not what we eat. Um, uh, it's what we say, you know, it's what comes out of our hearts the blackness of our heart that uh, is the problem, not, not, the th the, not necessarily the things that we say and do and think, it's the um, source. So remember the story of Mariah Karimji and her friend Samina. Um, what were the Dowdy Boris sect trying to do? They were trying to control, uh, use control to instill morality. Um, and it failed because as, remember they were talking about desire uh, the, the, even though they, they tried to cut the desire out, the desire was still there in the heart. Um, and, you know, there are probably better examples, but those are two that were recently on my mind. You know, maybe you have some, and maybe you can now think uh, in terms of these two paradigms about things in your life. Um, you know, golly, I, when I confront this, I think I'm a failure as a parent, you know, I mean, because I'm, I'm usually uh, kind of an adoptionist, but then I'm, an, I'm actually, I'm an introvert dispositionally, and so I'm constantly being docetic in terms of like, 
getting away from the chaos rather than like accepting it as a reality of everyday life. What I'd rather do is be like Christopher McCandless and like go walk the Pacific Crest Trail and not clean up the dishes, you know. Um, but, you know, I will tell myself lies uh, about getting my act together and, and talk to my children about the symptoms and realize that this is a futile hamster wheel. <laughs> um, and uh, there's probably a better approach. And it might look like something like giving up. You know, it might actually look like giving up. Um, uh, and this is cruel. Remember that the subtitle today is The Cruelty of Heresy because that comes from Fitz's book. Well, you can see the cruelty in both of these, hopefully from, a, from my sort of pastoral perspective. I talk to people who are often um, telling themselves lies on one end of the spectrum. And usually culture is in one place or the other, a given culture at a given time. Usually a person tends to be one or the other. You know, stop the Myers-Briggs. Let's start taking the adoptionist and docetist test. <laughs> um, and our culture, um, the last several decades, has moved away from a, a, an adoptionist uh, in the sort of Enlightenment uh, period, early 20th century, um, grapplings with God. Uh, nature in terms of things that have led to Unitarianism and stuff like that. We've moved out of that and are now in this spectrum with more New Age philosophies, which tend to be uh, more uh, docetic. And these are broad strokes, don't get me wrong. But um, uh, and, and so the, the Christian church is operating in a place where we're, we're really good at um, apologetically arguing against uh, adoptionist heresies. It's kind of like the U.S. Army was really good at fighting jungle warfare and then had to learn how to fight desert warfare, you know? Uh, we're, we're, we are terrible at confronting docetist philosophies because we're just not used to it. But that's what's out there in the world. I'm not Christian. I'm spiritual, but not religious, you know? Um, <coughs> uh, um, no creeds but Jesus or something, you know, I'm mean, just things like that that people say. Um, well, anyway, those are my thoughts, and I'll continue uh, along this trajectory and, uh, and come back to these with the, the next uh, few lessons uh, and talking about some, some other, um, really, I, I find these sort of dichotomies helpful. Um, they're reductive to a certain extent, but um, a lot of the stuff we'll be talking about is, um, just kind of pitting two things against each other. Any thoughts, questions, reactions to this stuff? We've got like five minutes. I think it's kind of interesting thinking about the teachings of Islam about Jesus. It's Which is, blend, uh, yeah. Too, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, he was this guy. Right. And very clearly, and just a man, but an example certainly. But then on the cross, they teach that Jesus was... It was si Simon of Cyrene who was up there, I think, right? right. Isn't he that the like teaching? Out for yeah, else. it was Simon, yeah. God took him up to heaven, mm -hmm. and somebody else died in his place. So he was only seeming to be there. Exactly. He really escaped it. Yeah. So it's this interesting blend of you know, heretical teachings about Jesus. Right, yeah, because Islam believes that Jesus existed, and he was a, a prophet, a good teacher. Um, which is a lot like the adoptionist heresy. When it comes to the cross, they teach that the cross happened 
I think it's Simon of Cyrene, they say, has, was switched out for, didn't actually die on the cross. And that would be an escapist sort of mentality. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's also like interesting to see like the church and like different wings of the church gravitating towards one or the other. Yeah. Like liberal Protestantism is kind of like, you know, classically like Jesus is just like a good teacher, you know, like he's not really God. And then like sort of conservative fundamentalism is like, just like we're just trying to get out of this really bad sinful world where everything's wrong. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I think even like um, with Steve's comment about there being a blend, I think you see elements of both and um, either sort of fundamentalism or uh, de jour Protestant liberalism, which might have more of an adoptionist Christology about who Jesus was, like he was a great teacher, um, but might not necessarily believe in an actual uh, resurrection. Um, but with the, the winds of the time, a lot of liberal Protestantism is buying the philosophies of the New Age movement and trying to blend them in. Things, pantheistic thoughts about nature and stuff like that. I, I was in seminary and there was a seminary. I went to Yale Divinity School, which like you can make any assumption you want based on that. But this is where I learned this stuff. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they actually teach this stuff there. Like uh, there are some Orthodox people there. But usually it was in the seminarians where you heard really outlandish stuff. Somebody in my second year who was a new uh, first year student said, well, I believe we're all God. You know, I'm God, you're God, God's God. I was like, are you kidding me? You're in an ordination track to be a Christian minister? You know, like that's just, that's a new age sort of uh, pantheism. You know, that's Hinduism. Go to the Hindu seminary if it exists, you know? I mean, <laughs> I grew up in San Francisco. Like I heard people saying that stuff all the time. I did not become, I'll tell this story too, by the way, my own personal background. I think I have to repeat this over and over and over again. I grew up in San Francisco, California, which is a lot of this stuff, right? I mean, the, the rumors are true to a certain extent. I did, not leave, I did not leave my atheist background to get a new version of this dressed up with Jesus. I became a Christian because I believed in a triune God and uh, the second son of that trinity died on a cross for the redemption of our sins. So when somebody, some wonky Episcopal seminarian tells me this stuff about we're all God, I, I don't have any patience for it. I'm like, I left that stuff. We did it better in, in Redwood City, California, where I grew up, where Steve's uh, son lives. Um, and we didn't have to tell ourselves lies about, I mean, if you want that, you know, just drink the Kool-Aid of the, the New Ageism. Don't, don't mess up Christianity. Sorry, that's my rant. <laughs> Any other um, thoughts? I was raised Catholic, and there's <laughs> there's some glorification of suffering that goes on. Right. Um, yeah. The church, and um, that there's that's strange, but but that also there is when you throw out suffering um, completely, then you miss the richness as well of understanding the fullness of life and, yeah. and, and the beauty of walking through suffering patiently. So I just read a book about a mom with a child with um, severe disabilities and that's mm -hmm. the journey she went on and the beauty that came out of that challenge of raising yeah. a child and, 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 and so it also made me think toward kind of our current culture of um, euthanasia and let, let's just mm -hmm. get rid of the suffering yeah. we don't want it, we want to yeah. escape it but it's yeah. valuable 
Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was. I, I wonder if. I mean, in a way, that I, I really like what you presented here. I need to read the book because Nancy has it right. But uh, <laughs> um, but the. Uh, I wonder if heresy is the right framework for understanding this. In the way that the way that I, I'm getting this, it's yeah. Like, heresy to me is like a label that one group of Christians always slapped on another group of Christians, right? Historically, yeah, I that's a, that's a really good point. And that, it's not focusing on Jesus or the truth, it's focusing on what those other people are doing wrong, you know what I mean? So, there's always kind of, there's always kind of a blame game in the way that, that yeah, happens. yeah, yeah. All, all of these isms, right, were generated by this, by uh, yeah, well, it was a way of sort of hiding off people who didn't quite disagree, quite agree with us, and putting it in the center. And I wonder if, um, I, I just wonder if there's a different way of, I don't know, there's something about that word that bothers me, I think. Yes. I remember, he, I remember hearing a, seeing a video of the Metropolitan or the God, the Orthodox, head Orthodox cleric in, in, in North America uh, meeting with some Anglican people talking about unity and all this sort of thing. And they were all doing this unity thing. And, said, and in the end he said, um, Difficulties. There are some difficulties, and, he, and the the thing that struck me, he said, the filioque is a condemned heresy mm-hmm. from the Orthodox perspective, which is something, something that we do. Yeah. Here, yeah. Uh, well, let me. And and, uh, and I'm like, wow, that's like huge, you know. But when you start throwing that word around, I don't know. A loaded it, it, word. It's a loaded uh, word. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 I I think that's helpful to acknowledge, and there's uh, orthodoxy uh, or things that have called itself orthodoxy have made mistakes. Um, and, and using power to control, and then actually, then orthodoxy was actually was leaving, or because orthodoxy should always be going at the heart. And so what happened was uh, the word heresy has been abused. It's actually a helpful term to use, though. I think that that's uh, I think that's coming from the the twentieth sort of. 20th century, 21st century ideas that like we just don't we want to be sensitive and not hurt anybody that we shouldn't throw terms like heresy out. But the thing is like that's what they're called in terms of a historic academic category. So I you know other than giving it a new name, I mean we'll be talking about the same thing. But these are things that um, through the the centuries uh, Christian leadership by I'd have to say like the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit have realized these are not just wrong they're harmful they're harmful to people and that's why that's why we need to address it um the cruelty aspect which is what sets fits aside like please do yourself a favor and read this book because he addresses your concern i was trying to find it and couldn't find it where he says a much better version of what i tried to say i'm running out of time i've got to go celebrate the 11 o'clock service come back in two weeks where we will talk about moralistic therapeutic deism yeah. Thank you. Thank you.